Hello and welcome to the Wittered Report podcast, where we empower business advisors to transform businesses. This podcast is your source for information and news you need for your accounting, bookkeeping, or tax practice. Don't forget to check out scalingnewheights.com for information about our conference in June. And if you subscribe to this podcast, we will have a special registration offer just for you coming up soon. And now your hosts, Joe Woodard and Heather Satterley. Well, hello, Heather. We are at it again. And this this week, we're going to be talking about process documentation. And you've got lots of ideas to share. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Yeah, thanks, Joe. This is my favorite part of the week. Yeah, so process documentation um, is is so important, and, and and I like to say that you know what I hear from practitioners all the time is that they don't have time to document their processes. They have to get all their work done, um, and they don't have time to take you know take out of their day to actually go through and do it. And my answer to that is it's kind of like saying that you don't have time to fix a leaky faucet, right? So you've got a leaky faucet. It's dripping water, you know, it's driving you crazy, yet you don't take the time to actually fix it and it continues to drive you crazy. So until you actually call the plumber and get in there and get it done, you can't move past that irritation. So it's the same thing with our processes, right? Um, it is a, it is hard. Documenting processes feels like it's something that's not making us money or not driving our firm forward or not growing our firm, but that's actually the furthest from the truth. If documenting processes, I would say, is the only way to set yourself up to be able to scale your business, increase, you know, to grow your firm. So what I wanted to talk to you today during the podcast was talk about what are really great strategies to help you make shorter work of documenting your processes, make it a little less painful, and also to really make those processes really impactful and easy to follow for yourself and for your team. So the first thing that I'm going to say is when you think about baking a cake, right, we bake a cake um, or cook anything. if you don't follow a recipe, you always run the risk of, you know, leaving out an ingredient or making it taste not so good. And if you have a favorite recipe that you make and you bring to a, a Christmas party, to family gatherings, like mine is mac and cheese. I have this amazing macaroni and cheese recipe and it is famous. My kids love it. Their friends love it. I've made so much macaroni and cheese in my life that, uh, I don't know, it's just, so my point is, is that everybody counts on that macaroni and cheese tasting a certain way at every family gathering. And if I don't follow my recipe, I mean, by now I have it memorized, but when I'm gone and my children want to actually make mama's amazing macaroni and cheese, they're going to need the instructions to do that. So writing down a recipe and not just the ingredients that are going in, but the methodology of how I add those ingredients and the little secrets that I have that make it taste the way that everybody loves, I have to document that so that my kids are going to be able to make that mac and cheese um, when I'm not around to tell them how to do it. And the same thing is true um, in our practices. There's this amazing book um, by Atul Gawande called the, the Checklist Manifesto. Um, 
And, and he talks about how creating checklists is a way for us to maintain the quality of the services um, that we're providing and pass our knowledge on and be able to delegate that knowledge to other people in our firms and our lives. Um, and his focus on is on the medical industry, right? We all know we hear the story of the person that forever has a sponge sitting somewhere in their in their innards. Um, and so he starts with that that premise of, you know, in quality control within a hospital, you can't you can't explain how to do a surgery, but what you can do is you can create guidelines via a checklist that can help you prevent errors during the surgery, right? Because when you're in the middle of a surgery, you're not exactly sure what's going to happen, right? Somebody's blood pressure might drop. Um, somebody, you know, there's all kinds of things. I'm not a doctor, but the point is, is that if you have a checklist of things that you look for, if something like that happens, you already have a plan to step in and counter that and make sure that the surgery is successful. So as he said, you can't make a recipe for something as complicated as a surgery. Instead, you make a recipe for how to have a team that's prepared for the unexpected. And that's the big takeaway of that book. So let's talk a little bit about how we can create really good processes. Uh, our processes, doc, good, good documented processes should provide guidance and clarity. And clarity is a key word here. Clarity to your team and clients. So it's something that people really understand what the end goal is and why you're doing what you're doing. It maximizes efficiency and consistency. It bolsters the quality control of your firm. You know, one of the things that I did when I first started my tax practice is I really depended on those AICPA tax segment or tax section checklists. And I did them every single time for every client. And I did the really long one, the 46 page one for every new client. And then I used the shorter ones for returning clients. And I did that because, you know, when you're in the work, sometimes there's things that don't come to mind as you're working through it. And by going through those checklists, it reminds you of the really important quality control, um, you know, parts of the engagement that may slip your mind as you're actually going through the work or you're in the middle of something and you get a phone call and all of a sudden you're distracted from it. Uh, and honestly, documenting your practice, you know, everybody talks about automation and wanting to be able to automate. The path to effective automation is to document your processes first. You never want to automate ahead of or attempt to automate ahead of actually documenting those processes. So the place to start when you're documenting your processes is to recognize what is the end goal of what it is that you're going to be doing. So you want to make sure that you're looking at what is it that I'm trying to complete? What is the perfect end result look like? And then you want to start identifying what are the major steps to get there. So you want to go wide and then go narrow. Okay. Uh, then you're going to start to ask who, what, when, and why. So when I'm documenting processes, I'm listening and I'm trying to decide what is happening at the beginning of the process to each step. Who am I relying on information from at each step? Where am I getting that information? and what is dependent on me moving to the next step. And so I'm thinking about those things as I'm starting to 
uh, as I'm starting to map it out, and you can do this in an Excel spreadsheet, you can do this in a fancy program, you can do it on a piece of paper or a whiteboard, whatever you want, whatever works for you. But the idea is, is to figure out the who, what, who, what, when, and why. And then you're going to identify the touch points. And by touch points, what I'm talking about is where does that information change hands, switch applications, right? Or rely on exterior information that needs to be coming into the process. Those are touch points. Those are things that are actually going to affect where the process goes. And then finally, we're going to fill in all the details. Okay, the details of enter this information into this checkbox, you know, move this file into this file directory, that kind of thing, those kinds of details. So that's where you're, you're, you're going to, to focus on. So go wide, then narrow, and make sure that you're not overlooking the details and that you have quality control touch points uh, throughout the process with indicators that are letting somebody know that it's time to move on to the next step. <clears throat> So next thing I'm going to talk about is how do you capture those workflows? So it's hard. You think about it, you, you could spend hours documenting a process depending on how, uh, how intricate the process is and how much information is. So how can you do that quickly and how can you drill down to get to the main points of a process and really document it well? Uh, well, one of the ways that I have done that is by recording somebody actually completing the process. And this can actually be you. So you can record a session when you're doing something like a month and close with a client, just open Zoom up, hit the record button and talk your way through that engagement or that, that process. Just talk your way. Right now I'm going in and I'm grabbing the bank statement and I'm going to enter the beginning balance and the ending date. And I'm going to start checking off the transactions that I see on the bank statement. Talk yourself through it. A video is worth a thousand words. If you have somebody that's coming in to your practice, you can say, here's a video of me doing this process and they can actually watch it. Um, now we have transcription applications that do a really great job. So I could actually take the transcription of me talking through the process and put it into a app like ChatGPT perhaps and say, can you please put this into an outline for me or a sequence of steps? So there's technology out there that can help you to make a little bit short, you know, shorter work of documenting that process. Um, and then the other thing that I would say is you could take an embed or provide a link to the video of you doing the process into your workflow system. So if you're using something like Carbon or Canopy, um, go ahead and put a video into the checklist that you're providing to your team. And that way, if they're stuck or they're not quite understanding what the process is, they can go back and watch you or someone else as, as they're doing it. Everybody processes information differently. Some people are readers. I'm a reader. I need to read it. If I'm watching a video, I don't quite, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get the overview, but I won't get the specifics. I've got to go back and read it. There's other people that are very different from me and they need to actually see it or hear it. Reading it goes right over them. So uh, it's important to have multiple ways that your team can actually process that information and learn. All right, so you've got the uh, the transcription apps, some apps that, that we talked about, Zoom. Um, there's also transcription apps like Rev.ai and Otter.ai. We actually use one called Avoma uh, here at Woodard, which, which we're really liking. 
Another app that would help you to uh, to capture steps in a workflow is Scribe How. That's one I really love. Um, there are some competitors to Scribe out How out there, but what that does, it actually captures your keys, your mouse. I say keystrokes, but it is keystrokes, but it's mouse clicks as you're going through a process, and it actually creates a visual step by step document that then you can share via PDF, via link. Um, and that's really helpful. That's going to help you make short work of those uh, of those processes. Uh, you also want to sometimes utilize workflow diagrams. So uh, in some cases, when I'm looking at a really intricate workflow that I need to document, I'll use something like Miro or Lucidchart, and I'll actually make a flow chart. And what's nice about using these applications is you can do swim lines, which are vertical lines, And you can separate them by things like applications, people, departments, and then you can organize the steps within that process into the swim lane so you can see how those relationships actually connect between the different applications, people's tasks, and you can make notes. So if there's things like I, you know, if if it's, for example, a Uh, an e-commerce business and you're recording the sales for e-commerce, you can actually put notes in there that say in Shopify, the sales are recorded and then it flows through to QuickBooks because it's really important when you're doing your work in accounting to understand where the data is coming from. So having a workflow diagram like that can be really, really helpful. So putting all that together, when you're structuring your your processes, um, you're going to group your work into groups and sections. So, you know, it could be internal touch points, uh, assignees and ex- external text touch points. So we're thinking about what are the groups of tasks, and then you're going to fill in with the tasks that actually accomplish that check- checkpoint that lead you to that particular, um, that particular kind of benchmark or not benchmark milestone within the process. Uh, some of the um, some of the applications that are really great to help you organize uh, your information into workflow or practice management apps. Carbon does a great job for it. Really, what you're looking for there is you're looking for something that's going to be able to give you the overview of the project and the actual granular task management of the project, so you can see where it is in the process. So Carbon's a great one. Uh, Canopy Tax is a great one that you can look at. Um, Asana. um, There's a whole bunch. We use Teamwork here at Woodard um, for our internal projects, but all of those have the ability for you to manage the different people, the different milestones, the tasks, and it gives the whole team insights into where you are in the process. And it really helps you to organize it. So people know exactly what they're expected to do and then how to actually do it to meet the end result. Because if you remember, that's where we started. What's the end goal, right? So hopefully that's helpful. You know, by documenting those processes, it is an investment, but it's probably the best investment you're going to make in your firm is by going through that. Because at that point, now you can democratize and delegate your tasks to your other team members, which gives you more capacity within your firm. Love, love, love everything you're saying. And that democratization word is key, you know, because uh, what we're talking about here is not just efficiencies. It's about taking what's in the brains of the people in your business and placing that through democratized systems 
into a container that becomes, here's the magic word, intellectual capital. So not only have we done everything you've just talked about, and that's the most immediate and and short-term benefit, but we've also created a long-term benefit, which is increased valuation of our practice. We have an asset that we can now not just leverage, but also sell one day as part of the practice equation. Um, I, I, and you mentioned something, my favorite thing you mentioned in this whole thing is start broad because the biggest, that's the biggest thing I hear from people is there's no way I see other people's processes and there's no way that I can get there. It's like writing war and peace being Tolstoy. And, and don't, if you think about writing war and peace, you'll never write. But instead, if you think about writing the, the outline of a novel, right, 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 just the biggest, broadest steps anybody can write an outline. Um, and then you start thickening the outline. And what I really liked is you, you were saying, don't, don't set aside time to write processes. What I got from you is record yourself as you're doing what you're already doing. So it's more journaling than it is writing a novel to keep the metaphor going. So you outline your journal, then you journal what you're already doing, right? Or do it in the inverse, create an outline out of your journal. But all you're really doing is capturing the organic behaviors of your day, slightly, slightly slowing yourself down to the degree of whatever it takes for you to turn on Scribe or turn on a camera, a recording system, and then, you know, rendering that as a video. It it doesn't slow you down much. And it's definitely a slowdown to speed up piece. Now, I really want to drill down with you on this relationship between standardization and and, and technology and automation. I agree with you wholeheartedly. You cannot automate a process that doesn't exist. My question to you is, where is the tipping point? Because at some point, a solution like Bill or Divi or Gusto or OnPay, whatever it is, at some point, the solution becomes the narrowed process. You're right. So, yeah. so it, does it start to become a dance? It does become a dance. And, you know, I've done a lot of work in process automation. And typically what's happening is we're realizing there's too much, too many manual steps and we start to look for a solution, which is why I say, Joe, always look at what the end result is. Hmm. Because if you're looking at what the end result is and you identify what are the things that are slowing the process down, what are the things that are affecting the quality of the of the outcomes that we're trying to accomplish through the process, then you can start to look for technology and tools that will help to make it better. So Mm. you do need to understand what you're doing. You know, for example, a bill is a great example because if we think about the accounts payable process, you know, firms were using checks, right? And, and, And the manual AP process was terrible because we had to enter the information. We usually had to find out what we were going to code the expense to. So we had to reach out to the person who actually bought the thing, right? Then we had to go and uh, and create, you know, put it into the accounting system, print the check. Then we had to go find the person that was going to write the check, right? So there are all these manual steps. Well, the outcome was to get bills paid easily, to get the information onto our financial statements in a really efficient way. And so once we outline that and diagram that out and we can start to see where the bottlenecks are, now we understand where the problem in the process is. And I can start to go out into the market to say, where can I find an app that's going to eliminate having to use checks that has built-in approvals, right? That if has I need the ability- it. If I need approvals, right, yeah. Exactly. But my, my, my point is, is now I have, I have the must-haves 
for the solution I'm looking for. And now I'm going to find you know, technology that's going to help me to streamline that. So yes, it's absolutely a dance, but if you don't know what you're doing now and you can't, you can't explain that to someone, then you're, how are you going to find a solution? So the, so the initial documentation becomes the technology specification. And, and, and that's why I kind of interjected the, if I need them, because my high level process would have informed as to whether or not I need approvals. And if I don't, then I might be able to use the, some of the AP automation that's baked right into a solution like QBO. Um, if yes. I do need them, then I have to start making a decision about an, an integrated app. So powerful stuff. Um, the thought that came to my mind while you were talking, I'll kind of end on this thought that we'll get into our next fun segment. Um, everybody's heard the phrase, perfection is the enemy of the good. But what came to my mind as you were talking is, perfection is also the enemy of initiation. Yes, we, we won't start if we think we must begin with the perfect or, or you could even say completeness is the enemy of initiation. Right. And neither of those has to be part of the equation to get started on this. Um, the higher level you go, the easier the bite of the apple. Take that. Take that first bite. Yes. And, and, and I think the last piece of advice that I would give to somebody is make your first project, your first process, the process of documenting processes and set mm-hmm. a goal for yourself. So the first one is how am I going to do this, and then set set a plan in motion. I'm going to document that. three processes by the end of April. Love I'm going to document that. six. You know, that, then you're going to start to see the middle the needle move by the end of the year. You're going to be like, oh my goodness, my processes are documented. It's not That's going to be right. that painful. Of course, it, it does start to run into a problem if you don't have a process to document your process to document your processes. So <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. We could just All right. Yeah, you get into a quagmire, couldn't you? Yes. Yes. All right. So um, so let's get to the TV and movie segment. Uh, I want to lead out on on this one. Um, this is my favorite one of all time because you and I both love TV and, and movies oh, and stuff I do. like that. And and I kind of cheated this time because uh Ted Lasso is one big metaphor of business management and leadership. So but I'm gonna pull a Ted, but there are degrees of greatness in Ted Lasso. So, um, so Ted Lasso's quote, uh, that I really like here is, uh, and I'm going to do it in exactly as he says it with, with, you know, cause I am from the South. I can pull this off. Taking on a challenge is a lot like riding a horse. If you're comfortable while you're doing it, you're probably doing it wrong. Now I can't relate to that. Heather, you can, you're, you, I know, can. You, yes. are, you ride horses, but what I can relate to is a golf swing. When I was learning how to swing a golf club, nothing about that felt natural um, until I had done it about 5,000 times. Uh, so the, the the business takeaway here is everything new is supposed to feel foreign. And, and if we will, if we misinterpret this as because it feels foreign, it isn't for me then we will pre-dismiss great opportunities in our life, great learnings in our life, and professional development in our life, all because of the momentary, the momentary feeling of abnormality or misfit. Okay. And I talk a lot about this concept called a terror wall because there's a terror wall that exists between you and anything that's unknown or uncertain or unpredictable, right? And right on the other side of the terror wall, if you can overcome that and start actually doing it, whether it's writing processes or whatever it is, 
there's a failure trench. And that's really what Ted Lasso is talking about is this failure trench. If I were to go out and try to learn how to ride horses, I would mess up constantly until I mess up less, until I mess up almost none. It's called the failure trench. And I can't learn to ride a horse unless I fail. Right. So you can't learn how to do processes unless you fail. And you can't learn how to coach a client unless you fail. And you can't learn how to hire people and manage them well until you fail. But that's okay because it's supposed to feel uncomfortable and foreign at first. All right. So what's yours? What's your big one? By the way, I love that. I just wish it wasn't. I mean, failure, I don't know. I, I know, know it's a I powerful like word, but I didn't water it down. I didn't like, water it down. Can it be the learning trench? <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I know. And I wanted I, that would smooth it off, but the whole point is not to smooth it down. Because, I, you're right. You're right. Because no, the failure is going to hit you in the face. The word should hit you in the face. Oh no, absolutely. So, so mine is the office, and I took one that was talking. I, 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 I picked one that that really spoke to process, and so. It's, it's the episode in the office where Ryan finally quit. So we all know Ryan, who is Michael Scott. Oh, spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. Michael Scott, what, you know, he's the, the very much dysfunctional, crazy uh, boss in the office. And then Ryan is his assistant who he, <laughs> he abuses. Are you thinking Ryan or Dwight? No, no, Ryan. So Ryan okay. was the, the young, one that was the his young assistant. One. Yeah. Okay. So Ryan has been with him for a long time. He finally quits and he quits by leaving a note on, on, on his desk while Michael's on vacation. Okay. No less. So Michael comes back and he's trying to get a, uh, a presentation for a potential client. It's really important. And he can't find any information about how Ryan did it. There's nothing. And so what his quote is, is I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I only know what I can do. Mm. And so I think what we're talking about there is that we're in order to set the next person up for success, right? We need to make sure that we're leaving a trail because, and in the episode, spoiler alert, is that he, he actually creates the proposal and he loses the client and it's horrible because he only knows what he knows. And we all know that Michael doesn't actually work. <laughs> he has other people that work. Um, and so when, when he lets them, yes, when he lets them, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it's talking about the frustration that, that you leave if you don't leave a process and something happens and that's a real thing. You know, mm. I, you know, I, in my own life, I had, I had to take a, a leave of absence to care for one of my kids for about six weeks and somebody had to come in and do what I did. And if I didn't have documented processes, that would have been so much harder for them. So it's important that we, that we do that. Yep. So you just gave yet another caveat on process is transition of team members. Yes. And coverage. Yes. So you can actually go on a two week cruise and your company keeps running. Right. Yes. All right. Um, all right. So now we're going to get into the book segment. I'm going to take the book segment this time around. The latest book I read, my most recent read is Free to Focus. And uh, it's a book by Michael Hyatt. Um, and my major my major takeaway from this, if I break it down into the three segments of Michael Hyatt's segmentation, it's stop, which means that you have to plan out. You have to pause for a second to create intentionality so that you know what you should stop doing, what you should lean into, what you should defer, what you should, you know, then um, act because now you can actually act with intention, right? Um, excuse me, cut, 
cut comes over. So there's stop and then cut, cut out the stuff that you don't want to be doing and then act. So stop, cut, act. And I don't have time to go through the entire of the book, of course, but I'm going to take some of the, uh, the, the key points that meant the most to me, right? And the ones that meant the most to me were two chapters. One was called Flexing Your No Muscle, N-O Muscle, right? And the second one was called Beating Interruptions and Distractions. Now, both are a form of saying the same thing. They take what claims to be important, and it might even be important, right? But what, what claims to be important, and most of the time it's a claim, what also imposes itself as my urgency when it isn't, right? So it claims to be important, whether it is or not. It is. It claims to be an urgent, whether it's really my urgency or not. And identifying those two things as you're not really important and you're not really urgent to me, even though you might be urgent to somebody else. So, um, and by 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 identifying that, we now get to compartmentalize it in what Eisenhower Eisenhower calls Matrix Three, and the Eisenhower Matrix is Quadrant Three. Quadrant Three are those things that are not important but have presented themselves as urgent, and that could be another person's problem because they have manufactured that problem through inaction or irresponsibility. And all of a sudden they want you to rescue them. So rescuing others is a good example of where, of what would be urgent, but not important. And I know that sounds cold, like, wait a minute, but aren't we supposed to love people and aren't we supposed to care about people? And isn't that important in the Eisenhower matrix? There's only one definition of importance. And that is how does it measure up against your plan, your intentionality and the outcomes that you decided in the past that you were going to drive. So don't read too much into that important, not important, or read it correctly. It would be the better word. Now, once you've determined this is not my urgency and it's not important by Eisenhower matrix definition or Michael Hyatt's definition, then you can ask yourself, to what degree is it responsible for me to do the compassionate thing and, um, and help another person through their manufactured emergency or non-manufactured emergency? But that's the right question. And it, depending on the answer, it's all very, it's variable. Until we ask that right question, what is the responsible thing for me to do? So let me give you a practical example. If I've got a friend who has known forever that they needed to get new tires, but has procrastinated and procrastinated and procrastinated and procrastinated, and they've also known that they were supposed to have a spare tire, but they haven't had a spare tire in their trunk for the last you know, two years. Um, and I'm, I have a commitment to my wife and my friend's car breaks down and they call me and they're like, I really can't get to work. I need you to come because my car is stuck on the side of the road and I can't get to work. So now I'm asking the right question, right? What is the responsible thing for me to do? And I, there's no right answer. It comes down to what's the nature of my commitment with my wife? What's the degree of, of uh, to which my wife's love bank is filled, right? Have I done this to her a lot lately? Um, you know, what, you know, how much did my friend manufacture this? How important is it that he gets to work? Is he on the side of 75 with people screaming past him at 85 miles an hour? Is there a life risk issue? I mean, there's so many variables. The variables are going to exist and I can't solve for those today. It's the question you must ask. So, Michael Hyatt says, if you say yes to something, 
you are always saying no to something else. Even if that no is your own hobbies, your own sleep, but often that no is to another human being in your life. As long as you're cognizant that the yes has a corresponding no, then you can weigh the proper priorities. But time is exhaustible. And attention, he makes this point, attention is exhaustible. It's replenishable, but it's exhaustible. You only have so much of it in any given day. How you're going to use it is incredibly important. The second is avoid compulsive engagement. This this from that last chapter. Huge, huge impact on my life. Andy Stanley said, he was not quoted in the book, but Andy Stanley says, the quality of your relationships are not measured or is not measured by the speed of your response. So the quality of your relationships is not measured by the speed of your response. Try to tell a 15-year-old girl that. That's my daughter, right? (laughs) It's not going to happen. But I do quote him often. I'm like, you can let that go. We're at dinner. You can let that go. We're in a movie. You can let that go. You're in the middle of surgery, whatever it is. She's going to pick up that phone. And right. She's, right. So, but it, but aren't we guilty of the same thing? So, so what you want to do is limit instant communications and notifications. You want to check messages periodically, not perpetually. You want to recognize, this is huge, recognize that dopamine in your brain reinforces your compulsive engagement. Every time you see an email you want to respond to, a tweet or a Slack message you want to respond to, dopamine is triggering and it tells you this is what you're supposed to be dealing with. It lies to you. Your actual neurochemicals lie to you about prioritization. And the final thing is recognize that compulsive engagement is easy. Even if it didn't have the dopamine stimulant, it's easy and it's fun and it's predictable. And it will always lure you away from tasks that are challenging or daunting. And the final comment I want to make is uh, his concept of fake work. Um, And fake work, one of the examples of fake work is perpetually checking your inbox, right? But there are other kinds of fake work too. And this isn't his exact words. These are words that I've gleaned out of many books I've read around uh, prioritization. But procrastination is not inaction. It is acting on the wrong thing or acting on the right thing at the wrong time. Procrastination is about prioritization. It is not about the level of activity. And that's where people get, mis- they misunderstand and they think, well, I've been busy all day. I've even gotten 40 tasks done today. Therefore, I've had an amazing day. But what if they were not the 40 tasks you were supposed to do? What if there was one task you were supposed to do that actually was more important than the other 40? And you did the 40 fun, easy and predictable ones. Yeah. All right. There you go. That is a lot. And that is a lot. Where my brain just went, and it's probably a self-preservation thing that my brain just did, was that's so subjective, right? Like I think that when you're thinking about, you know, what is the most important thing that I should be working on, that is totally subjective. And I think it depends on, you know, where, what are you, I don't know. I think that that's something that we really have to look, look, look at as far as, and it goes back to your vision, mission, core values, right? Of, it's vision, mission, purpose at the highest level. Yeah. And it's, it, it's um, planning with plan, key, yes. with key measurements. And that's why he gets into the planning phase. You can't act until you plan. Right. And the plan creates the guardrails for prioritization. And totally. then the Pareto principle comes in, what 20% uh, of things can I do that will generate 80% advancement toward my plan, do those first, 
even and and they are almost always the hardest things to do that 20%. Yeah, and so it's basically taking what are you what's going on in your life and then what importance you have to gauge them by the level of importance in your life, the deadlines, like where are the opportunities going to be missed. So yeah, no I love that. And you know, you had shared with our team uh, about turning the notifications off on our phones and that was absolutely life-changing. I did that last week and I had not thought to do that, but it's awesome. Like I only go in, like when I go and look at my messages, there aren't little note. There's not like, you know, three waiting for me actually at a certain point in the day, just click on it and I can read them and take action and then turn them off. And that has been as somebody who is very well aware of my uh, attention deficit. Um, <laughs> I've got it too. That's my snicker. I've got it too. I yeah. can't have those things on all day. All right. right so <laughs> let's get into favorite social post. You go first. What did you see okay. out there? So my favorite social post was Megan Justice on Twitter said, I spent a lot of time over the fall and winter addressing what gives me overwhelm in my practice. Then, and she, the way she wrote it was really important because she put a, sp- a line space between the next thing, which was, then I address solutions, line space. It's not easy. And I'm still mildly panicking on today's date. Um, But I've drawn some boundaries already and it's easier to keep drawing them now. Mm. And I loved this because, you know, you have to take the the, the time to learn yourself what you really want from your career or your practice. And, you know, and then, you know, once you find that, you know, when you identify that, then you can start to identify what's going to distract you from getting there. Mm. And that's where the boundary lives. You know what right? she did here? The three things in her three spaces of Twitter is she planned, she cut, and she acted. She did. So yeah. so it would be interesting to know, had she read the book? Or, I or, could, or it could it be your whispering idea thing that you talked about uh, last uh, last episode? Did the, the, the same idea get whispered in her ear as Michael Hyatt's? Uh, all right. So Inky Johnson is mine for this week. Um and I love him. He's spoken at Scale New Heights twice. And um, his in, in one of his most recent tweets, he says, you are born looking like your mama and your daddy, but you die looking like your decisions. Mm. Boy, that's powerful, right? That is powerful. So, so here's my takeaway from it. Your, your decisions, not your genes, your heritage, or even your circumstances ultimately determine the shape and the outcomes of your life. Now, I'm, I know there are people that are more advantaged than other people. You can use the word advantaged or privileged, whatever you call it. That absolutely exists, whether it's economic or it's race or it's, it's socioeconomic or whatever it is, geographic, right? We all have that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even though some people have a head start on others, maybe even some people have a perpetual lighter lift than others all through the whole of their life, History, including modern history, is replete with advantaged or privileged people destroying themselves, right? And inversely, disadvantaged people creating powerful or even world-changing outcomes. So if you are finding yourself in a position that is less than equitable, I don't, I want you to hear me you can still affect your outcomes. It may be a little bit more of an uphill climb for you, but yes, watch history. And there are champions in history that will inspire you. I love that. And always, always lift people up. 
because you, what you say and the way that you behave has such power to influence someone else's belief in themselves and what they feel that they're able to accomplish. So always lift people up because you never know when you're going to say that thing that changes the whole trajectory of someone else's life. And we've all had those moments where we have, and we don't even know we've done it until the toller, unless the person comes back and tells us, right? Exactly. All right. So we always end every episode by you, senior editor of The Woodard Report, telling everybody your favorite article from the past week in The Woodard Report. What'd you like? Yes. So one of my favorite writers in The Woodard Report is Leslie Leondas. And she wrote an article called, Are Your Processes Driving You Nuts? And she shares her experience documenting her processes with her team. And she shares the things that went really well. And she shares the things that didn't go so well and offers her advice. So I think there's great insights into this article that can help you Uh, you know, to learn how to document your processes with your team and get them involved and help them to give you feedback and really move, move the needle on getting this done for yourself and for your firm. All right. Well, that is a wrap for this week. And Heather, we get to do this again in one week. I'll talk to you then. Thank you for joining us. For more information, please visit woodard.com slash podcast.